This is Chris. Welcome to episode 235 of Effects Lapsed, uh, which is uh, a little bit more of an allergic day than uh, than usual. And by usual, I mean it's a pretty pretty allergic day. But uh, today, oh boy, I don't know if it's just the uh, the humidity that's hitting the the Phoenix area at this point, uh, the weird variance in heat. We're jumping from like 90 degrees to 110 degrees overnight. It's uh, really doing a number on. Uh, my headspace, uh, insofar as sinuses and uh, all those places that get stuffed up and make it difficult to sit behind a microphone and talk to yourself. So uh, this might be a toughie. Good thing it's a good issue. Good thing it's a good issue. I mean, this could be a, a different day, which I I won't even name names. But uh, let's get into today's issue. This is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 20. At a September 2021 cover date, the story is called Secrets and Lies. Written by Vida Ayala, with art by Alex Linz. Colors Matt Miller. Letters VCs Travis Lanham. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X for now. Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price $4. Went on sale July 21 of 2021. Now, we pick up pretty much right where we left off last issue, with the Shadow Kings Irregulars finding Scout's dead body. Uh, they try to figure out what their next course of action ought to be, with Rainboy suggesting that they probably should let the X-Men know. And by X-Men, I think he just means the grown-ups, rather than, you know, the gang hanging out at the treehouse in New York City. Now, Cosmar is worried that the grown folks won't do anything to help Scout, and says that they're going to have to figure this one out themselves. Well, Rainboy is still pretty insistent that the only way Scout will get resurrected is if they, you know, let the grown-ups know. To which, Scout herself sits up and proclaims that they cannot trust the adults. What? Okay, okay. Scout's body sits up. It's not actually Scout. She's currently being inhabited by No Girl. And No Girl, we don't get to hear too much from her, right? We don't get to hear her point of view all that often since she is a brain in a jar. And so, she's pretty ticked off. And uh, let's give her center stage for a second here. Let's take full advantage of the rarity that is... No girl dialogue. Now, she's still steaming over Cosmar not being allowed to go crucibling. When, just a few issues ago, Karma was given the thumbs up to have Danny do the thing to her, you know, back when uh, she wanted to be split from her evil twin brother. Now, No Girl also hasn't forgotten the nebulous state of clones insofar as the resurrection protocol. She says that uh, when Scout asked about whether or not she could ever be brought back, well, they just patted her on the head, and uh, second thought wasn't even given. No Girl's also annoyed about her own name, No Girl, claiming that it makes fun of her state of being a brain in a jar. Which, I mean, we can look at it and be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, 
but it isn't exactly right. Uh, I figure not enough folks will care enough to put up any kind of argument. But No Girl and Martha, the brain in a jar, they were originally two different characters. Martha, of course, was a brain in a jar. No Girl was nothing. Like, literally nothing. She was basically, I mean, we don't know if she was legit or not, but the feeling we got during the Morrison run was that she was a fake student that Zorn's special class made up just to screw with Zorn. There's a little more to it than that, but that's the uh, the quick and dirty of it. Anyway, so No Girl, the brain in a jar, who is now inside Scout, is not a fan of the adults of Krakoa. But, even with all that said, it still begs the question, what do the Irregulars do now? Well, Rainboy asks, why don't they just resurrect Scout themselves? Now, as we've been seeing of late... The Irregulars have been toying with body swapping and whatnot, so, hey, how's about we try and do the thing only permanently for Scout? And so it's decided. They're going to try and resurrect Scout themselves. Now they worry about getting into trouble. They also decide not to inform the Shadow King about their plan, fearing that that would put all Farouk in a bad position. Double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters will include Danny Moonstar, Karma, Wolfsbane, Warpath, Magic, Analay, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl. We hop over to the Green Lagoon, where Karma is having herself a drink. Amal Farouk is chatting up Wolfsbane, who in the first panel is drawn as having jet black hair, which made me wonder exactly who she was. I really thought for a moment that it was Shan's brother Tran, who I don't think we've seen yet, have we? I could be mistaken. Anyway, it's Rain, and uh, she and Farouk are talking about whatever it is that they've got cooking. Of course, we've seen that they've uh, maybe not so much gotten close, but they're associating with one another a little bit. So after the big man leaves, Karma wanders over to try and mend fences with Rain. Of course, uh, Rain has been yeah, troubled of late. Uh, we got the whole tear thing, we got... Her friends disappearing into Otherworld when she needed them. It's, it's been rough times for Rain. So, Karma's trying to make nice. And, uh, well, she does so by immediately cautioning her about getting too close to the Shadow King. Now, folks might remember that Karma has quite the history with the Shadow King from the original New Mutants run. Rain reminds Shan that she's not a child and doesn't need any looking after, and then basically tells Karma to buzz off. And I mean, this is pretty complicated, yes? Um, you know, Rain has been told uh, that Tyr is not being resurrectable and possibly even still being alive out there somewhere. All the while, Karma was able to push her evil brother's resurrection up the queue out of nowhere. So Rain sees the Shadow King, right, as someone who's trying to reform. And she compares that to Tran Koi Ma, who has basically always been an evil bastard, and he's just brought back without much question. She, Rain that is, then stomps off. Info page. That's a mission briefing on a new mutant who's been detected on Tristan Dacuna. Now, this is a scarily remote island. Uh, it really gives me the creeps thinking about something just like in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Wikipedia actually calls it the most remote inhabited archipelago in the world. It's approximately 1,732 miles off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa, and it's, like, almost directly between South America and Africa and the South Atlantic. Now, this island was discovered by Portuguese explorer Tristo da Cunha in 1520, and there are currently 250 permanent inhabitants of this place. 
scarily remote. Um, now, there's no airstrip. There's no way to fly there. So the only way to get there, uh, without a Krakoan gateway, of course, is by boat. And a trip from Cape Town to this island takes about a week. So, uh, yeah, this is in the middle of nowhere. And, yeah, we got us a new mutant on this island. So let's go find them, huh? We got Warpath, Magic, and a few young mutants who I don't recognize. Uh, We got Brother Nature. Huh? Okay. Leo and Kappa. And the uh, blue-skinned one with the insect wings who I can never remember the name of. Uh, They're on the scene to TCB here. And yeah, it's it's Sprite. Sprite is that other one. And yeah, I actually had to check the wiki. I'm sorry. Anyway, there are earthquakes happening. And they're emanating from one house in particular. Now inside it, James finds our new mutant. And it's a little girl with seismic powers, naturally. Now here's the thing. The people of this island fear that the Krakoans are baby snatchers. And that has been one of the rumors going around, so it does stand to reason. It's all a big misunderstanding, though, uh, which ends when James lets the child run back to her mother. Now, they inform the islanders that they've got no interest in snatching children, but they do leave a Krakoan gateway behind just in case the tot would like to learn how to use her powers, even offering to allow her human mother to come through as well, so long as they get some advance notice. The mother thanks them, and, uh, well, that's that. We jump back to Krakoa and the Shadow Kings of Regulars, and I think we're supposed to be calling them the Lost Club now. I like my name better. I like the Irregulars better. Um, Anyway, they're headed toward the hatchery when suddenly they're happened upon by Dakin. Dakin. Uh, He expresses relief at seeing Scout, and he lets her know that they've been worried sick about her. He also says she smells like dead bodies and can smell that she's lying when she gives him her explanation as to where she's been this time. Now, Scott accuses him of being too busy trying to get into Aurora's pants to even care. And, well, I'm pretty sure he's gotten into Aurora's pants at least a handful of times, so trying isn't the issue. And, yeah, no girl as Scout actually uses the phrase, quote, trying to get into Aurora's pants, which is yet another indictment on how these books ain't for kids no more. Mm. Anyway. Not sure how No Girl would be aware of any of this. Maybe there's still some mental residue in Scout's brain with uh, some memories intact. I I don't know. Info page. Now, it's the Lost Club's updated map of Krakoa. Now, you remember how happy I was that the map was shoved into, like, half an info page over in Way of X? Well, this one gets the full-page treatment, and it's mostly negative space. So I guess we can't win them all. Uh, There are four locations marked on this uh, Lost Club map, three with X's and one with a heart. Uh, There's a green X, which symbolizes the fort. Now, the fort was the building that was destroyed and rebuilt a few issues back by uh, those new bully characters who were kind of tormenting the kids. Uh, The red X is the crow's nest, which is part of the wild hunt. The purple X is the Shadow King's cave, which is the Shadow King's cave. Uh, And there's a blue heart labeled Santos, and I'm, I haven't the foggiest idea what this might be just yet. I'm guessing that this will be followed up on uh, as we move forward. Maybe this is the altar that they built out of a, out of a rock slide back in the day, uh, Santo, Santos? I, I don't know. We'll find out. Anyway, over to the hatchery. The Irregulars saunter up and they find Rain chatting up Elixir. Now, Elixir notices the Irregulars and refers to them as kiddos. 
weren't he and Anole contemporaries at some point? Like, the same age? Oh well. Uh, the kiddos then slink around back and try to make their way into the gold ballroom, which they do. Now, as they walk through the, the ball garden, they reflect on their lives and times with Scout, each giving their POV on the little squirt. You see, she made Cosmar feel pretty. She made Anale feel confident. She made Rainboy feel needed. And she made no girl feel like she existed. The Irregulars then happen across Tempest, who, holy smokes, actually gets a line of dialogue. Hey, beats the hell out of just, like, posing seductively while other people talk, you know? Anyway, no girl attempts to mind-control Tempest into helping them do the thing. Rain notices this, and so she wolfbanes up and looks all menacing. We close out back at the sextant, where Danny and Shan realize that they're gonna have to talk about Rain. And that, my friends, is where we leave it. Next episode, we're going to be wrapping up Cable, but uh, that's a discussion for then. For now, let's talk New Mutants. And, well, I really liked it. I feel like this was a really good blending of classic New Mutants characters and some of our new characters who maybe don't get quite as much time to uh, to shine in this book. Sure, we've seen the Irregulars before, but... Uh, They've kind of been relegated to just uh, shadowy, Shadow King uh, segments. And here, we're actually getting some time with them, and I really like that. Uh, having the classic New Mutants characters still show up and still play prominently into the story is also great, since there are uh, parallels between the two stories, right? Uh, we have the question of whether or not a clone can be resurrected. We've got distrust in the grown characters from the, uh, the kiddos. You know, this feels like uh, the whole... You know, don't trust anybody over 30 thing, right? Uh, where kids are always going to be dubious of what they're told by a grown-up. Even when the grown-up is only a grown-up, relatively speaking. Because, uh, I mean, we're lumping characters like Danny and Karma and Rain into this. Where I'm, I'm guessing they're probably supposed to be in their early 20s or so. But, I mean, when you're 13 to 16 years old, that that's an entirely different generation to you. That's whole different experiences, whole different lives from uh, where you're currently at. So not a lot of relatability between the two generations. It's a huge coming-of-age sort of a transitional time. So um, I like that. I like how we're playing that up here and how the stories are kind of all coming together. There's a lot of uh, passive aggression, which is something I really don't care for in real life. I really despise uh, passive aggression, but... In a book like this, where you know seeds of distrust are being sown and um, a, a, a feeling of classism and privilege is being kind of imposed on the cast of the book, I like it. You know, we've got Rain dealing with her troubles with Tear and kind of projecting her problems onto Karma, who, for whatever reason, was able to jump the queue. In the resurrection protocols, get her brother removed from her, and I mean they're making up the rules as they go along, is what I'm trying to say here. But some of the rules, and we've talked about this uh, during Way of X when we were, you know, talking about the laws of Krakoa and how they're written in a way that's both very simple and in a way that lends itself to perception and how people can see things differently. You know, they're, these, these laws are oddly both objective and subjective, right? Depending on who you are and, and what you might be able to get out of them. So we have these rules, and sometimes they are unflinchingly rigid, like in the case of a Cosmar or a uh, Wolfsbane and Tear. Other times it's, uh, 
well, Danny and Karma want to do this thing, and sure, why not? You know, we can't think of a reason why she can't. It's for reasons like this that I feel like a book like this is so important to this line, where it's not quite as overt as A Way of X. And, and I mean, I love Way of X. It's probably my favorite book in the line right now. But Way of X is there kind of almost to force us to ask the questions or to validate the questions we've already been asking. Whereas New Mutants is a little bit, uh, a little bit more subtle with its approach. And, and I mean, I, and I'm not using subtle as a compliment or a detriment. It's just differently told. Where we're, we're having... What was that issue? I think it was Hellions. We talked about an issue of Hellions where they were talking about the resurrection protocols. And uh, it was Orphan Maker, who was very, very naive. He's very, very childlike. Asks, you know, how... Empath is dead and he's coming back. How do we know it's the same guy? And Grey Crow was screwing with him and said, Well, it's not the same guy. He just looks like him. And we're just going to treat him like it is the same guy. And just lines like that, where from, you know, from the mouths of babes that are that are questioning these things from a childlike point of view. Having the ability to view things sort of kind of black and white, you know, where you can point out that things are not fair or that things don't make sense without thinking about it, without getting too cynical about it, without getting too analytical about it and overthinking things. And that's what New Mutants is here. We've got the Irregulars, or I guess the Lost Club, I'm probably going to keep calling them the Irregulars. I like that name better. But uh, we have them pointing out things that aren't fair about the laws that have been laid out. And they're doing so from a very self-serving point of view. They're doing so from a very childish and, well, I don't want to say selfish, but perhaps a little more self-serving point of view where they want what they want. And due to either their status on Krakoa, their class, or their perceived class in, in Krakoan in, uh, in society, or maybe just their, their age and immaturity. Whatever the case, they're just not allowed to get what they want, whereas others can. What's more, I think them banding together in pursuit of Scout's resurrection is probably perfect. You know, it's like the most perfect way to do this, because Scout, despite being a clone... Despite being a copy, despite being a character who was bred to be an assassin, is somehow one of the more pure-hearted characters in this entire family of books, right? And that really shouldn't be the case. You know, she was bred to kill, right? And while I am ignorant to most of her story, her coming of age, her coming around to being what she is now, I, I do like that... She is the one who's been able to touch these characters, and she's been the one who they all want to... I mean, they, they even mention in this issue that they had their problems with her. You know, they've had crosswords with her. They've had issues in as far as uh, the distrust of the Shadow King and uh, maybe her sticking her nose in where they felt it didn't belong. But at the end of the day, she was able to improve all of their lives. She was able to leave an impression on all of them that made them feel better about themselves. And uh, they want to uh, pay that forward. And they want to help her come back. And, uh, and we also got a little bit of action with the, uh, the scene on the island with Warpath and Magic. Which was fine. It was brief. I think it needed to be brief. Um, because that wasn't the main, the main draw of this issue. But it was nice that they included it. Now the art here wasn't Rod Reese. But I'll say I very much enjoyed it. It was very good art. Um, of course, it wasn't Rod Reese, but <laughs> they can't all be. 
But overall, this was a very good issue. I'm very happy to have the Hellfire Gala, you know, in the rear view at this point, so we can actually move on with uh, some of our stories here. And so long as we don't wind up in Otherworld or on Madripoor <laughs> sometime in the next couple of issues, I'm very much looking forward to seeing where this goes and how it plays out. Uh, I'm definitely uh, looking forward to seeing uh, what Scout's ultimate fate is going to be. So that's all I have to say about the issue. So uh, let's hop into the mailbag before we cut on out. Let's start with Damien, who's talking about Curse of the Man-Thing. Oof. Damien says, what a load of old nonsense. Yes, it's very true. It's books like this one that trained me not to be an X-Men completist by showing that Marvel is willing to put the title X-Men on the cover of books which have nothing to do with the X-Men. This should have been in issue number three. The fact that it's in three separate chapters makes me wonder if it was initially designed to run as backups in a series of different comics as part of a publicity drive for the new Man-Thing series. The over-explanation of previous chapters is a very Marvel Comics Presents kind of thing. I don't know, I haven't read a lot of Steve Orlando, maybe he's just wordy. Now here's the thing about Steve Orlando, and I, I you know, mileage will vary, of course, but uh, I'm not a fan, I just don't think he's very good. I can't think of a single thing that he's written that I've actually cared for. And I tell you what, there was a time where DC was very keen on throwing him on, like, every book that they were putting out, and uh, yeah, I... I never came around to his dialogue. Uh, his his writing style just isn't for me. It just isn't for me. Uh, Damien continues, Ultimately, the error is to write a story about Man-Thing. All the best Man-Thing stories are about the characters who end up coalescing around him and the nexus of realities. He should not be the protagonist. He should be in the background empathetically responding to the protagonists. Someone should have made Orlando read the Gerber or Claremont runs on Man-Thing or his use in X-Men First Class. It had great art, though. Yeah, I, I think someone should have made Orlando read any Marvel comics, uh, maybe besides Tom King's Vision series, which seems to be like the go-to for creators coming over from DC nowadays. It's like, I gotta take a, a B or C tier character, kinda turn them on their ear, and, uh, and get that book in shops. You know, get that, get that trade collection in the stores that people can rate 10 out of 10. Though, of course, I might just be projecting a little bit. That's always a possibility. But, uh, yeah, this... I agree with you. I agree with you here. There's a, a slight handful of Man-Thing stories that I've actually enjoyed. And, I mean, I don't even know if enjoyed is the right word for it. Uh, tolerated might be better, because I just find the character to be quite boring. But when you take when you take a character who, as as you put it here, should be, you know, responding to the protagonist, not being the focus character... And then you try to make him the focus character, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. I, I don't know if maybe we're trying to make him into a an Alan Moore Swamp Thing type character, or maybe Orlando's playing the Bendis card here, trying to get Man-Thing front and center for a future movie appearance. I I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see, or hopefully he won't, uh, he won't brush up against the X-Men again, so we won't have to wait and see. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for writing in about that... Uh, a challenging, challenging issue. Next up, Meals talking about New Mutants Hickman style, which is to say that first arc, or the, the arc that was kind of split by the farm thing in the middle, but the space stuff, that's what we're trying to talk about. So Meal says, let's have a throwback to when Hickman was actually writing an X-book. Feels like it's been a while, doesn't it? I really enjoyed these issues. Hickman really likes Sunspot and Cannonball, and that comes across in his writing. Personally, I have no strong opinions on Smasher. 
And even if I don't like her, Sam and Bobby's dynamic overshadows essentially everything in this arc for me in a good way. And yeah, Hickman definitely seems to like him some, uh, Sam and Berto, for sure. Uh, they were in the, was it Avengers World? Back when they were like... A dozen or so ongoing Avengers titles And you know, while on that subject I still make that joke all the time now Where it's like, oh, there's 15 or 16 Avengers books Or a skatey 800 Avengers books And there isn't right now There's Avengers and then there's some miniseries So that's uh, pretty crazy I will probably continue to make the observation That there are way too many Avengers books though So uh, I guess I apologize for that in advance But um, they were in Avengers world And yeah, they were both written with a great deal of care Um I'd almost suggest that if Marvel had any confidence in a Sunspot Cannonball Buddy book uh, being successful, they might have had Hickman write something like that back in the day. But uh, let's face it, uh, no matter how fun it might have been, it wouldn't have lasted very long. As for Smasher, uh, we've, we've talked about Smasher on the show. Nah, I'm not a fan of Smasher. Meal continues. If Marvel wants Bo- Sam and Bobby to hook up and be the case space dads to baby Ozaya, that would be A-OK with me. Overall, a fun story with some of my favorite ex-characters. So until Danny's on the Quiet Council, be mine ex-lapsed. And yeah, that was a very fun run there, which really kind of subverted my uh, initial take, because seeing the characters go into space, I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the space stories aren't really my, my jam, I guess. So I always come into them... With trepidation, and I'm usually going to be veering toward not liking a space story Because I just can't relate to space stories, I guess But this one really, really worked for me And I'm trying to think if I had any complaints about this And the only thing that sticks out to me, outside of the uh, the story being interrupted for the farm arc Was um, how they still relied on character death as a cliffhanger In a... In a world where death doesn't matter You know, I felt like that was a little I don't want to say hacky, but maybe easy Maybe just an easy way to do it Uh, And also magic was a little bit harsh in that storyline But I guess that's just kind of her character now But um, yeah, really good run Uh, Definitely before uh, Vidayala took over The high point of this New Mutants volume At least in, in my opinion, of course Mileage will vary But uh, thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on the The interrupted first arc of uh, New Mutants Volume 4 meal I always look forward to hearing your thoughts But that's going to do it for the mailbag Let's head into a a short shout-out segment here Uh, These are for an X-Corp episode Which um, I would always make the joke early, early on in this series That uh, Fallen Angels Day was the day that nobody listened to (laughs) It's like I would end the episode before by saying like Okay, next episode's Fallen Fallen Angels So I'll see you all the episode after that You know, so um, it's X-Corp And I kind of compare that to Fallen Angels Uh, I'd actually rather be reading Fallen Angels Which I can't believe I'm saying But uh, yeah, maybe a little bit less um, A little bit less word of mouth on this episode here So We've got uh, five folks who clicked the heart and the dialy thing on Twitter here that I'd like to thank. Uh, the Selling Out Show, Jesse D. Young, the Between the Pages blog, Joe Crawford, and Billy D. Over on Facebook, I'd like to thank Jeremiah, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, Billy D., and Walt Neeland. It really means a lot to me that you'd help me spread the word on the show, even when it's a, a little bit of a uh, contentious episode, like, uh, like X-Corp episodes tend to be. So thank you all so, so much. Now, one last thing before we get out of here. Uh, I was recently on Source Material Live with my friend Mark Radulich to talk about X-Men Deadly Genesis, 
which, uh, for folks who don't know, was a fairly seminal uh, miniseries from the mid-2000s here. It's uh, very of its time in that it's fresh off of House of M and Decimation, so a lot of those story threads are coming to bear there. Uh, This is right as Ed Brubaker is taking over as a writer on Uncanny X-Men. So we have this story, and then that launches into the the 300-part Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire story, and uh, it's a fun one. It's a fun one. It uh, retcons... uh, I mean... When you say retcon, it's not always uh, something that you say with uh, with a thumbs up, but uh, this was a fun one because it adds lore to Giant Size X-Men. It adds uh, a whole other team of characters who we never met before who were kind of vital to the events of Giant Size taking place the way that they did. It's, it's a fun story, and we had a great time talking about it. So that was on Source Material Live, and I will be leaving a link to... To the YouTube video where Mark and I talked all about it, so you can uh, you can see me in in the flesh and face <laughs> in uh, that episode. So hope you'll check that out, uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Speaking of hearing thoughts, and I'm not talking about the voices in my head at the moment. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very very easily. You could find me at Ace Comics on Twitter. You could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can leave a voicemail at the X-Lapsed hotline thingy at 623-396-JERK. And uh, if anybody out there has nice things to say about uh, us reaching a year of X-Lapsed and a year of daily podcasts, I would love to hear from you on that hotline, and we'll, uh, we'll have ourselves a little celebration on September the 1st. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for the complete archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And of course, that's everywhere that you want to find noise on the internet, and probably some places you don't. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! Oh